There's other reasons to suspect that Jesus uh, had some kind of ties to the Essenes, um, which is not a bad thing at all. Uh, but, but where did this hate come from? So we see a hate. It's present in a, in a document that was around in the first century. But where did it come from? Well, I suggest to you today that, that based on the historical context of first century Israel, the, the Israel, Israelites had been under oppressive rule for almost 600 years. They'd been forced into uh, to labor and, and to follow after foreign rulers, and, and they were promised, you know what, there's going to be a king over Israel forever. Uh, and they, there wasn't. They hadn't been ruled in the, the way that they thought they should be ruled in a long time. So right before this text, uh, Jesus references um, those that are, are holding you down, those that are, are persecuting you. And it's in Matthew 5:38 to 42 that Jesus references this. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. This is right before Jesus says, love your enemy. He's talking specifically about Romans. He's talking specifically about Roman soldiers that are forcing people to carry their packs for two miles, or for a mile, rather, and Jesus is saying, stop. Stop hating them. Therefore, the the most reasonable explanation is that of hatred of people based on foreign rule and dominion that was read into the Deuteronomy and the Leviticus texts as a validation of the hatred that was developed for those outside of Israel. So this opening statement of Jesus when he says, love your brothers and hate your enemy is to say, look, you're, you're to bless the children of Israel, but you must not bless those that are not part of Israel. Anybody that's outside of Israel, don't bless them. Don't have anything to do with them. It's what they've been taught. And Jesus follows this with the phrase, but I say to you, here Jesus is telling the people that have gathered that, that his teaching is this. What I have to say about the scriptures is this. This was a huge claim for Jesus. Jesus was saying, my authority says this is what the scripture means. This is how we're supposed to live. Now, for, for a first century person to claim authority to teach the scriptures was outrageous. See, they weren't allowed to interpret the scriptures like we do today. They, they had to get their interpretations from a rabbi. A rabbi had to say, this is how it is, and you had to follow that. So for Jesus to say, this is what it means, I say to you, is huge. Jesus says, but I say to you, verse 44, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus turns things on their head here. He says, look, you've been told to hate. You've been told to marginalize. You've been told not to have anything to do with these people. And that's the way it is. But I tell you that there's something bigger going on. That these people that you hate, 
that you should love them. It goes contrary to what Israel believed uh, their role in the world to be. It goes contrary to everything that Israel stood for. There's an organization that was formed in England. Uh, It is called the National Secular Society, and this is a conglomeration of atheists and anti-religion folks. And uh, they have come up with a ceremony. And this ceremony is, is a bunch of people come together, and they, they partake in what they're calling de-baptism. Now, de-baptism is, is the ceremony where people publicly proclaim that Jesus is dead. That he didn't raise from the grave. That God doesn't exist. And there's no point in any of what we're doing here. They walk under a hairdryer labeled reason to symbolize being dried off of the water that we're baptized in. They eat a cracker with peanut butter smeared on it to mock the Lord's Supper. And then they're given a certificate. And this certificate reads, American Atheist Certificate of Debaptism. Know all by these presents that this person, a human being, has, on this date, in public assembly, freely renounced a previous mistake and accepted reason over superstition, embraced freedom from needless guilt, and has, in solemn ceremony, been debaptized. So who's your enemy? Is the National Secular Society your enemy? Are Muslims your enemy? Homosexuals? People of a different race? When we use the term enemy, we we get these real visceral feelings. There's a lot of negative that comes to mind. We see these people as fundamentally bad and evil. And this is exactly what Jesus was saying not to do. The idea of of all these negative feelings being conjured up in us is exactly what Jesus said was wrong with hating your enemies because it creates seclusion, it creates violence, it creates hatred. We should bless those people. That's what Jesus says here. He says we should pray for them, that we should return good for the evil that they do to us. Those that publicly renounce Jesus, we must pray for them to publicly proclaim and come to know Jesus as their Lord. Are you praying that your enemy would come to know the Lord and walk with him through life? Are we returning good for evil received when we are wronged? Are we providing the needs of life for those that persecute the church and talk negatively about us and Jesus? Or are we only blessing those that are inside? Are we only blessing those that are part of Israel? Now, I'm not saying it's bad to bless those that are in the church. It's absolutely commanded in the New Testament, and it's beautiful. However, it's not to be left there. It doesn't stop there. Would you be willing to give 
the necessities of life to someone that's leading a de-baptism ceremony. Love and pray for your enemy. Verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Love your enemies, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now this this phrase here sounds a little bit uh, misleading on first glance. It almost sounds that Jesus is saying, do this so that you can be a Christian, so that you can be saved. But that's not exactly what's going on. The word sons here uh, in Greek is the word huios. Now this word uh, used in this context refers to somebody that exemplifies the character of another. Jesus uses this word earlier in chapter 5 in verse 9 when he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So it's here that Jesus is saying, when, when you do these things, that's when you look most like God. That's when you are showing God to people the clearest. D.A. Carson, the uh, professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical uh, Divinity School, has said this, to bless and pray for those that persecute us is to align oneself with the characteristic of God. So the sonship that's talked about here is, is not in reference to salvation. It's not in reference to our eternal life. We are given eternal life by faith alone. However, this saying, Jesus does a couple things. He says, he says look, the people that are living as God created them to, the, the way that God has designed humanity to operate with each other, is to bless everyone. To bless everyone based on nothing more than their intrinsic value as a human being. He says, doing this shows people that you're in the right relationship with God. But he also displays that we don't, we don't, quite, we don't quite do it. I mean, I know, I, know I, I definitely haven't always loved my enemies. I could give you plenty of times where, where I have just downright refused. Downright refused. I think we, we, we've all been in those situations. Um, and by, by saying this, Jesus is also showing that we have a need for grace. That we have a need for forgiveness. Because we failed to obtain perfection, and we failed to live up to what God has commanded the world. Jesus does this all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. He's doing this over and over and over. He's saying... This is how you live for God. This is what it looks like. This is what a person that is characteristic of God looks like. But he's also showing that we don't quite get there. But thankfully, uh, thankfully, through the cross, through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, we can be reconciled to God through faith. When we believe in Jesus for eternal life, it is ours. We possess it. As Neil talked about last week, the hope is ours. We have it by faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, I encourage you to do so. Believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life and you will be saved. Jesus offers salvation to all who will come to him, regardless of who they are. Notice what he says in verse 45 about who God blesses. 
that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, which is to say, that you may be perfectly aligned with your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God shows no partiality to humanity. The just and the unjust. Those that believe and don't believe. God cares for every single person. The sun rises and the rain falls on everyone, and everyone is offered salvation through faith in Jesus. God blesses the evil and the good with the things they need for survival and eternal life. And we, too, must not restrain our abilities to bless and love those that we see as enemies, those that are against the way we would say is correct. And while the way of Jesus is without question correct, somebody that doesn't follow that way does not lose their intrinsic value as a human. We are to love and bless people based on that intrinsic value alone so that we may show God's love to them. It boils down to this. What people do and stand for do not affect God's love. They do not affect God's sustaining power for their lives. So too, what people do and stand for should have no determining factor upon how we love them. Rather, God loves people because they are people, and we are to emulate that. So those that that we think are enemies, all those people that that came to our mind when, when I asked that question a few minutes ago, they're really not our enemies. They're, they're people. They're people with value and worth. They're people that are created in the image of a loving God that desires to be in relationship with them. And we are to make every effort that we can to aid in showing that love and taking part in the reconciliation process between these people and God. We are to pray for those that we would normally think of as enemies because they possess intrinsic value and worth as human beings, human beings that are created in God's image. The just and the unjust can be found all around us. We live in a culture where... uh, a lot of people have Judeo-Christian values but wouldn't call themselves a Christian. Now, just because they live a certain way doesn't make them justified before God. Your actions cannot justify you. So these unjust people can be found all around us. They may look very much Christian but renounce Jesus. They may be a homosexual. They may be somebody that that you would normally think of as an enemy. And Jesus says in Luke 10 that that whoever we happen to come across, when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, whoever we happen to come across, these are the people that are our neighbors. These are the people that we can love and pray for, that we can bless. These are the people that we would normally think think of as our enemies, that we can do something good for. And it's through blessing everyone, including our enemies, that, that we'll, show, we'll show something that separates our love 
the love we have for humanity and the world from the love that everyone else has. Notice what Jesus says in in verse uh, 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? It's tax season. How many, how many of you guys like to pay taxes? No? One hand in the back? No? Dustin? No? no? Nobody likes to pay taxes. That's my hard-earned money. I don't want to give it to the government. I don't. I want to keep it. Yeah, there's some great programs that taxes pay for, but I still don't want to pay them. When you fill out, when you fill out that tax refund, you, you subtract line 46 from line 43, and you, you subtract line 42 from that total if the sum of your property is less than, less than $10,000, and then you multiply that times 3.14 and find the, the diameter of, of your, your bicycle tire, and then you say, wait a second... This isn't, this isn't the instruction book for taxes. This is the instruction book for the, the kid's bike from Christmas. And so, finally, you, you get down to that bottom box on, on the tax form, and, and, and you see a number, and, you're, and you think, whoa, this, this can't be right. I get a refund? I get money back from the government? And so you go through, and you do it all again, and, you, and then you call the CPA, and you say, I don't know what's going on. I don't, I don't know what's wrong, but this thing says I'm getting money back, and that's just, that's not realistic. This is the government we're talking about, right? But you're right, you get a refund. Sometimes, not everyone. But if you get a refund, are you going to let the government keep that money? No, not a chance. I, I'm, I'm going on a shopping spree. I'm going to go buy some new jeans. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to dinner. Whatever. See, in the first century, uh, the, the tax collectors would, they would raise the tax rates. They would collect taxes for the Romans, and then they would raise the tax rates, and, and they would keep part of it for themselves, creating uh, a huge, huge uh, pad for them. They'd become very wealthy on the increased taxes. And uh, the Jews, they, they hated the tax collectors so much so much. They, they thought they were so unclean and such filth, such scum of the earth, that they wouldn't even take a tax refund for them. If, if it got to the point where, where they give them change for, or they give them uh, monies for taxes and, and the, the tax collector said, let me get you some change, they'd say, no thanks. I don't want anything that you've touched. The tax collectors were the lowest of the low in the eyes of the, the Israelite people. They were the lowest of the low. They were people that you would want nothing to do with. They came in contact with Gentiles and Romans constantly. And so they were ceremonially unclean. And when the, when the disciples that Jesus is talking to and the crowd thought of their enemy, there's no question that Rome came to mind. And these are people that are working for Rome, that were lower than Rome, that they hated more than the Romans. So that brings us back to Jesus' questions. What reward have you? The natural response of Jesus' audience would be to think that they'd have a reward coming. They're loving people. They're doing good. 
They're keeping the law, or what they thought was the law. That they were blessing the children of Israel, and that they're hating their enemies. They're doing good. But Jesus says, what reward have you? You have no reward. There is no reward for loving those that love you. There, you are not doing anything more than the lowest of the low, the scum of the earth. What are you doing differently? What is so different about loving those that love you when even the tax collectors do this? The people that you will not come in contact with, that you refuse to cross paths with, what is different about you? So by posing this series of rhetorical questions, Jesus is saying, what's special about you? What sets you apart? What are you doing differently than everyone else? And then he goes on to emphasize this point in verse 47 when he says, and if, you're, if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Here at Coast, we do, a fa- well, all of you guys do, not so much me, all of you guys do a fantastic job of greeting people. When there's somebody new that comes into the church, I've heard countless stories of families say, I'm just so impressed at how friendly everyone is. Everyone, Everyone greeted me. Everybody was happy to see me here. And that's beautiful. Kudos to you guys. That's fantastic. That is what the kingdom of God is about. Loving people. But do we extend that same courtesy to everyone we encounter? I mean, everyone. Not just here. Somebody at work. Somebody at your kid's school. Somebody at the grocery store. Because that's our neighbor. Anybody that we happen to come across. Are we truly willing to love those that society sees as low and unclean? See, it's one thing to do it here, and it's beautiful and good to do it here. But are we willing to bless a heroin addict? What about a prostitute? What about a homosexual? The people that we think are low? Well, they love their friends, too. So what sets us apart? See, if, if, we're, uh, if we're willing to love those that nobody else will, that shows God's love. That shows God's love for them on the intrinsic value of their human existence. Not because they act a certain way, not because they believe what we believe, not because we like them, they look clean. It's because they're people, and they deserve to be loved simply because of that. And this is exactly what Jesus is instructing us to do so that we we may be mature followers of him. If we are able to love people regardless of who they are, we will be mature, as Jesus states in verse 48. Verse 48 says, Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
The word perfect carries a, a connotation of, of complete or finished. It's often translated in, in some uh, translations of Bibles as complete or mature. And uh, this, this word here, the word perfect, um, doesn't mean that, that you're completely flawless. It just means that, that you are totally and completely able to do what God calls you to do. Used in this context, it refers back to verse 45 when, when Jesus says uh, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. So, so Jesus says, do this so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And here's a practical example of how to do this. So that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. So that you may be perfect. This word perfect is, is the same word used in Colossians 1.28, which says, Him, that is Jesus, we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The word perfect is, is a, uh, it's indicative of a maturing process, a growing in Christ. And our growing in Christ, our pursuit of righteousness, is dependent upon how and who we love. If we desire to have the characteristics of God and show them to others, we must cultivate a love that is impartial to all of humanity. So what, what can we make of all this? This teaching that Jesus says, nope, this is wrong. Love your enemies, don't hate them. Forget that, that they're evil, because they're not, they're people. They have the intrinsic value of a human, created in the image of God. See, we, we see that Israel had become resentful and developed a hate for those that opposed them, um, because... They didn't want anything to do with them, and they were upset that they got wronged. So we must be cautious not to harbor feelings of resent and disdain, these negative, visceral feelings that come up when we think of our, our enemy. We must be cautious not to allow those in our lives, because it leads to exclusion and hate. Rather, we are to love all people by blessing them, praying for them, and doing good regardless of their actions. We are to be impartial in our love. Bless those and pray for whoever we come across in our lives. This is the mark that will show that we have the love of God and that we are his people. At no time should we ever relegate or marginalize those that we see as enemies. But instead, we are to love and pray for everyone without partiality because of their intrinsic value as humans. Moreover, God desires this of us so that we may exemplify his character and become mature followers of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you today. We praise you that you are a God of love, that you've called us children, that you've blessed us with the ability to come before you. God, we ask that this week you would help us to love our enemies. That you would help us to not see any difference between, between those that, that are atheists and those that hate you and, and those that are seeking you. God, we pray that we would love people based on their intrinsic value as humans. God, we praise you for your love the example you have, the impartiality. God, be with us throughout the week. We give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.